Well, I invite you to stand this morning as we read the Word of God together. Please take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. Psalm 57. For the choir director, set to all Tashheth, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Pray with me this morning. Father, we bow before you this morning, and we gladly confess together that you are the only true and living God, that you are the exalted God, that you are holy, that you are set apart from all of your creation. You are transcendent beyond anything that is created and earthly. And Father, you are the only being in all of the universe that is worthy of our praise. You are infinitely glorious. You are infinitely full of loving kindness and truth and faithfulness. We thank you that it is by your good hand that you have brought us here this morning. And you have brought us here so that we would collectively lift our voice in praise to you. Father, as we think of David as he wrote this psalm, we know that he wrote it in the midst of suffering. He wrote it as he reflected on a time in his life when he was in a cave, running for his very life. Yet in the midst of such difficulty... He confessed that his heart was steadfast. His heart was steadfast in singing your praise and in giving thanks to you among the peoples. And Father, may that be true of us. May you help us in our hearts to be steadfast. God, enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Give us the ability to focus our entire heart upon you. May we be humbled by the fact that we have your revelation written, completed in our hands. And as we read the Word of God and as we study the Word of God together, we know that it is your very Word to us. 
May you draw us near. May we find refuge in you today. May you build up your people and strengthen your church all over the world where your people gather to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our privilege to set our minds on the law of the Lord and to study it this morning. In that regard, I invite you to please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning. Let me read them as we begin our time together in the Word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Many years ago, a preacher named Harry Ironside was at a crowded restaurant. And just as he was about to begin his meal, a man walked up to him and asked if he could sit down and join him. Ironside invited him to have a seat and then proceeded to bow his head and to give thanks to God for his food. When he finished praying, the man asked him, Do you have a headache? He said, No. The man said, Well, then, is there something wrong with your food? The man, Ironside, said, No. Ironside then said, I was simply thanking God as I always do before I eat. To that the man responded, Oh, you're one of those, are you? Well, I want you to know that I never give thanks. I work for my money with the sweat of my brow, and I don't have to give thanks to anybody when I eat. I just dig right in. Ironside said, Yes, you're just like my dog. He just digs in. Well, that's one way of saying that it is the will of God for you to give thanks to God for your food and really for all things. As Donald Gray Barnhouse said, quote, God's definite will for the believer is that he shall be a fountain of praise and that his life shall be in thanksgiving to God at all times and in all circumstances. Now, as you read the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, What you will come to understand very quickly is that one of his most common themes is the theme of thanksgiving. I want you just to listen for a moment as I read to you a brief sampling of Paul's exhortations to thanksgiving in his New Testament letters. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 3, 15 through 17, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. One more example, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I again say to you that it is the will of God for you to be thankful. It is the will of God for you to give thanks to Him for your food, for your breath, for your water, and for everything else that God gives to you. And so I ask you, right now, 
this very moment, are you thankful? What is the condition of your heart this very moment? Is your heart overflowing with gratitude, as Paul said it is to be? Are you thankful to God for your food and for your breath and for your life and for your family and most of all for your salvation in Christ? As we have just sung these wonderful songs, have you done so in the spirit of thanksgiving to God and as an expression of worship to Him? Beloved, as much as the Apostle Paul exhorted his readers to be thankful, Listen, he also exemplified what it meant to be thankful. Paul is one of the most thankful people I have ever known. And I don't know him personally. I know him by virtue of what he has written. In almost all of his New Testament letters, what Paul does at the beginning is he offers thanksgiving to God for his readers, and that is exactly what we find in our passage this morning. Now, so far in our study of Philippians, we have seen Paul identify himself as the author of the letter. We have seen Paul identify the recipients of the letter, and we have seen him give a beautiful gospel greeting. And now we are going to see him give thanks to God for his readers. And in his expression of thanksgiving to God, we will see two features, both of which are printed for you in the bulletin. Paul's thanksgiving was joy-filled in verses 3 and 4. And Paul's thanksgiving was gospel-centered, and that is in verses 5 and 6. So point number one, Paul's thanksgiving was joy-filled. Verse 3, I thank my God. One commentator says, gratitude to God was uppermost in Paul's mind as he begins to pen this letter. And he is certainly right. The verb thanks that Paul uses here is present tense, meaning that this was the regular pattern of the life of Paul. He didn't just give thanks every now and then. It wasn't just a random thing. Rather, it was a way of life for Paul. And please note to whom Paul gave thanks. I thank my God. The direction of Paul's thanks was vertical. It was not horizontal. He is not giving thanks to the church. He is not giving thanks to the Philippians. Rather, he is giving thanks to God himself. And not just God, but my God. That denotes the intimacy of Paul's fellowship with the one true and living God. He belonged to God and God belonged to to him. But what was it that Paul was thankful for here? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. The church at Philippi. He is thankful for the Philippian believers. Now I want you under, to understand that in verses 3 and 4 and really beyond that, Paul is filled with a lot of emotion. There is a tremendous amount of intensity in Paul's thanksgiving to God for the Philippians. He's very emphatic here. In verse 3, he thanks God for them, and he mentions that he remembers them. In verse 4, he mentions that he is praying for them two times. And in verses 3 and 4, he uses the word all twice. In verse 4, he uses the words always and every. It is very emphatic. It is very intense. There is a deep amount of felt emotion in the heart of Paul as he is expressing his thanksgiving to God in behalf of the Philippian believers. So listen, beloved. Paul is not just a little bit thankful for this church. He is vastly thankful. His heart is gushing and overflowing with gratitude to God for this church. And part of what makes this so amazing is the fact that when Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he is experiencing at that moment some of the most difficult times in his ministry. As Paul writes this Epistle of joy, this epistle of thanksgiving. Where is he? He is in his first Roman imprisonment, and yet he is still thankful. 
He is facing a potential execution. Now, it is one thing to write a letter of thanksgiving to a people if you are in the Hilton. It is another thing to write a letter of thanksgiving to a people when you're on death row. And that is where Paul is, potentially. And to make matters even more painful for Paul, there were certain preachers who were deliberately trying to cause pain to him. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. There are certain nameless preachers who were trying to cause harm to Paul to add to his suffering. But Paul was a man whose thankfulness to God could not be disrupted by suffering. One of my favorite things Paul ever wrote is 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, always giving thanks to God. So you could take away Paul's freedom, you could put him in prison, you could put him potentially on death row, you could heap emotional pain upon him and physical pain, and he would still remain thankful. And this was something that the Philippians already knew about Paul. You will remember that when Paul first came to the city of Philippi, what happened to him? It wasn't a pleasant reception by the city. He and Silas were arrested. They were severely beaten. They were cast into the inner sanctum of a prison, if you will, and they, they were put into stocks. They're suffering greatly. But at midnight, Luke writes that they were singing and praising God in the middle of all of the suffering. And so what we learn about Paul is that he was an amazingly thankful man. He was thankful to God even when he suffered, and even when he suffered in tremendous ways. And so Paul, beloved, he is a model of his own teaching. He is an example of what it means to give thanks to God in everything. Now, I want you to consider something else about the situation in which Paul is writing. By the time that Paul is writing this letter in about the year 61 A.D., it had been about 10 years since he had planted the church in Philippi. About 51 A.D. was when he planted the church there. So 10 years later, and now hundreds of miles away, he is in this prison in Rome, and yet he writes to them, in verse 3, that he had not forgotten them. He had not even come close to forgetting them. Every time he remembered them, he says that he thanks God for them, and this reveals the depth of his love and the depth of his affection for them. And then he says in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He is piling up the words to express the depth the height of his love and his affection for them. He doesn't just remember them, he prays for them. Has somebody ever told you when you were going through a hard time, my thoughts are with you. I'll be thinking about you. Well, that's a, a sweet sentiment. That's a nice thing to think about, that somebody is thinking about us. But Paul doesn't say, my thoughts are with you. He says, my prayers are with you. That's where there's power. And Paul exhibits his love for this church by expressing thanks to God and for praying for them. The best way to remember our brothers and sisters, beloved, is to remember them before the throne of grace. Do you do that? Do you remember your brothers and your sisters before the throne of grace? It is in that sense that Paul remembers the church at Philippi. He remembers them by way of praying for them, praying for them all, not just some of them, but every individual saint within the assembly gathered in the city of Philippi. May I be so bold as to say to you that if you truly love someone the way Paul loved the Philippians, you'll pray for them. Do you agree with that? Listen to A.W. Pink, who says, The measure of our love for others can largely be determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them. 
Do you pray for others? Do you express love to them by praying for them and remembering them before the throne of grace? Well, here is Paul in prison, potentially on death row, suffering hundreds of miles away from them, and yet he is in a disposition of prayer and thanksgiving. And as he prayed for them, what he says in verse 4 is that his heart was filled with joy. As he prayed for these believers, it produced joy in his heart. Now, this is a real contrast to some of the other churches in the New Testament. The churches of Galatia, they were in danger of compromising the gospel of grace. And the church at Corinth, they had become like the world. They had conformed to the world, and as a result, those churches had broken the heart of the Apostle Paul. But the church at Philippi was a church that we know of no serious moral defection and no serious doctrinal defection. It was unlike Corinth. It was unlike the churches in the Galatian region. This is a church that was not perfect. No church is. But it had never brought, listen, pain to the heart of Paul. It had never broken his heart. It had never caused him to suffer any sleepless nights. So every time he thought about them, he thanked God for them. And every time he prayed for them, it filled his heart with joy. Pure joy. What a church. What an apostle. And what a beautiful relationship between the two. Let me ask you, do you make it easy for others to be thankful for you? (laughs) I mean, you could say, I thank the Lord for so-and-so, but Lord, it's hard to be thankful for them. It was easy for Paul to be thankful for the Philippians. They were such a, a healthy church. Let me ask you this, do you make it easy for others to be filled with joy when they pray for you? That's how the Philippians were to Paul. They made it easy for Paul to be filled with joy when he prayed for them. We should live in such a way that it makes others thankful to God for us and that when they do, it brings joy to them to do so. But now we ask, why did the Philippians bring so much thanksgiving to Paul? Why did the Philippians bring so much joy to his heart? That brings us to point number two. Paul's thanksgiving was gospel-centered, verse 5. I love this. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The key word here in verse 5 is the word gospel. Paul mentions the word gospel nine times in the letter to the Philippians, which is more often than he does in any other book. The only other book where he mentions it as many times is Romans, but Romans is four times longer. And so Paul uses the word gospel more frequently here than in any other letter. It is a major theme of this book. So we have to pause and we have to ask, what is the gospel? We can't be too clear on the gospel, can we? What is the gospel? If someone were to walk up to you from the street, somebody that you did not know, and they were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you say? Beloved, it is not good, but you can't afford to be confused about eschatology, but you cannot afford to be confused about the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel, the word gospel means message, a message of good news. It is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ was condemned in your place on the cross, that He suffered the penalty of God's wrath in your stead so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins. That's the gospel. And nobody can, be, can afford to be confused about the gospel message. It is the good news that God loves sinners, and instead of giving them what they deserve, which is immediate hell because of their sin, instead God graciously and freely and sovereignly gives to us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is not about becoming healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in a worldly sense. The gospel is about the God of the universe, the holy, righteous God, forgiving sinners of all of their sins through Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel. And beloved, the gospel is the primary message of the church. Why? Because it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, Romans 1.16. It is God's only means by which sinners can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul said the gospel, listen, is of first importance. It is of the highest priority. It is central. It is the most vital thing in the church. It is the main thing. There is such a thing as the whole counsel of God, which Paul talks about in Acts 20, but the apex of the whole counsel of God is the gospel of God. That is the zenith, that is the highest point of what God has revealed to us, the saving message of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the main thing. That was the central message of the the Apostle Paul. It is the central message of God. It is the central message of the church. Our message is not a political message. Our message is not a social message. Our message is not about entertainment. It is about how lost sinners can be redeemed and reconciled back to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so listen, the reason that Paul's thanksgiving was so deep And the reason that he was so filled with joy when he thought about the Philippian believers was because they too believed the gospel was of first importance. There was no confusion in their dedication to the gospel or in their understanding of the gospel. They had not been caught up in a false gospel like the Galatians were in danger of doing. They had not succumbed to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel like so many people are today in the world. And that brought thanksgiving to the heart of Paul. It brought joy to the heart of Paul. And please notice how Paul describes the Philippians' relationship to the gospel in view of your participation in the gospel. They participated in the gospel. The word participate is the Greek word koinonia. You may be familiar with that word. We get our English word fellowship. They fellowshiped in the gospel. It has the idea of sharing something in common. In the first century, the word fellowship could be used of commercial matters. You could have two men who go into business together And it would be right to say that those two men were now in fellowship with each other. They were sharing. They were partnering in a business together. For others, they may experience fellowship based upon a shared experience in life, such as being prisoners of war. If you have two men who have both been POWs, they would be able to fellowship in that shared life experience. Or you may have two moms who have both lost children they would be able to fellowship in that common life experience. But, beloved, in the church, our fellowship is in the gospel. That is what unites us. That is what knits our hearts together in love. We are not in communion together because we share the same social status, because we are all the same color or have the same level of education or because we have the same... Whatever kind of social status you can think of. Our communion together is not determined by the same life experiences. It is determined by the gospel. And the gospel alone. We've all been saved by the same grace of God, through the same Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of His death, His burial, and His resurrection from the dead. And beloved, that is the message that binds us together. We fellowship in the gospel. We participate in the gospel together. And you will notice that Paul says they participated in the gospel, listen, from the first day until now. That is wonderful. 
What, what does he mean by that? Well, when was the first day they participated in the gospel? Do you remember that first day in Acts 16? It was that Sabbath morning when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went to those women who had gathered for prayer at the riverside. There was no synagogue apparently in the city of Philippi, and so they go to the riverside and find these Jewish women who were gathered for prayer on the Sabbath. And Luke tells us that Lydia, a woman named Lydia, and her whole household believed the gospel and were saved. And beloved, that marked the first day the Philippians participated in the gospel. And soon afterwards, there was a slave girl who was demon-possessed from whom Paul cast out a demon. And we might assume that beyond that, she believed the gospel. And then there was the Philippian jailer and his whole household who believed the gospel and were saved. Now, I can't think of a more diversified group than that, can you? A wealthy businesswoman, a poor slave girl, and a middle-class jailer. But they all participated in the gospel, and they were all charter members of the church in Philippi. And what Paul is saying when he says from the first day until now, he is saying from those very moments when the gospel first penetrated the lives of those individuals until the very moment that Paul is writing his letter, they have continued to participate in the gospel. They did not deviate from the gospel in these ten years. And they participated in the gospel in at least three ways. Number one, they maintained the purity of the gospel. They didn't compromise the gospel. Again, they were not like the Galatians. They maintained and guarded the gospel. Number two, they personally spread the gospel within their own community. We know this because the church grew. The church didn't just have Lydia and her household and possibly the slave girl and the Philippian jailer and his household. By the time Paul writes this letter, there are overseers and deacons in verse 1 of chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 25, there is a man named Epaphroditus. In chapter 4, verse 2, there are two women, Euodia and Syntyche. In chapter 4, verse 3, there is a man named Clement. And these are the people that we know of by name that have been added to the church since the time Paul first planted it. So they were faithful to spread the gospel in their community, and God was pleased to save sinners and add them to the church there. But there is a third way that they participated in the gospel, and this one is most interesting. They financially supported Paul in his gospel ministry. Look at chapter 4 and verse 15. I want you to see how Paul brings attention to this. And I believe Paul has this in mind in chapter 1. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia... No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. If you look there in verse 15, the word shared. After I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. This is the same word as back in chapter 1, verse 5, koinonia. They fellowshiped with Paul. They partnered with Paul. They participated with Paul in his ministry. Apparently, when Paul left Philippi, and that was quite a mess when he leaves the city because he had been unlawfully arrested and beaten. He was a Roman citizen, so he is released from prison, and the policemen basically beg him to leave the city, and so he does. He leaves, and he goes to Thessalonica. And while he was in Thessalonica on that same missionary journey, the Philippians sent him at least two financial gifts. He mentions that right there in verse 16. For even in Thessalonica you send a gift more than once for my needs. So at least twice they send to him financial gifts. 
On that same missionary journey, he goes from Thessalonica to the city of Corinth. And there again, they send him another financial gift. And now, when they hear that he is suffering imprisonment in Rome, they send him another gift. Verse 18, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Listen, you might think the Philippian church was a wealthy church, but it wasn't. It was poor. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the poverty of the churches of Macedonia, of which Philippi was a part. But in spite of their poverty, they were very generous, and they were very generous in particular with the Apostle Paul. Is there any wonder then why Paul was so thankful for them, why he had such joy in his heart when he writes this letter? They had always stayed faithful to the gospel from the first day until now, and this produced joy and thanksgiving in the heart of Paul. So let me ask you a question. As you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, which we've already looked at, if the Philippian church had done all of these things for Paul, why didn't he thank them? Why doesn't he say, I thank you? <laughs> I mean, they had certainly done a lot for him. They had been very generous with him. They had been faithful in the gospel in a variety of ways, and we might expect Paul to begin his letter by saying, I am so thankful to you. But he doesn't. And verse 6 tells us why. For I am confident of this very thing, he says. Here is something that Paul is fully persuaded about, something that he is absolutely certain about, namely, that he who began a good work in you. Stop there. Paul thanked God, beloved, for the Philippians' participation in the gospel from the first day until now because it was the fruit, it was the result of God doing a good work in them. That's why. If he thanked them, he would be thanking the wrong people. As Paul observed their steadfast commitment to the gospel over these ten years, he was convinced, he was fully persuaded that they were a genuine church, that they had genuinely been converted, that God had genuinely done a good work in their hearts. He's persuaded of that. Now, we could do messages on just verse 6. It is so pregnant with meaning. First of all, it teaches us that God is the author and the initiator of salvation, doesn't it? Listen, the ultimate reason that the Philippians were so faithful to the gospel is because of God. Because of what God had done in them. Their participation in the gospel over the course of those years was, again, simply the fruit of what God had done on the inside of them. And if you are a saved person this morning, it is only because of God doing a good work in you, period. It is not because of anything you've done. It's not because you were more attractive or because you were smarter or because you were wiser. It is solely and completely because God has begun a good work in you. In fact, if any sinner is ever going to be saved... It is only going to happen if God begins a good work in his or her heart. Why? Why would I say that? Because by nature, sinners do not want God. We talked about that, about that in Sunday school. By nature, sinners do not want God. They do not seek God. Every sinner born into the world is a spiritual fugitive on the run away from God. As fast as he or she can run from God, so do they run from God. 
And the only way that any sinner will ever come to God is if God will first go after them and arrest them with His grace and bring that sinner to Himself. That is the only way. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the one who sent me does what? Draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. When Jesus says no one can come to me, he's not saying no one is invited. He's not saying nobody is welcome. He is saying this, because of sin, nobody has the moral, the spiritual ability to respond to God in a positive way. Why? Because the heart is now sinful and corrupt and deceitful, and it, in truth, hates God. Sin has rendered men unable to come to God. Sin has caused us to become spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, and spiritually dead. The minds of sinners have become darkened, their wills have become enslaved, and their affections have become perverted. They hate the light, they love the darkness, and never, ever, ever in a million years will a sinner come to God on his own. Ever. It's impossible. I heard this past week about Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you heard the report about Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists in the world. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. What an interesting title from an atheist. Apparently, he is saying he actually does believe in God, but he just doesn't believe he's great. Well, Christopher Hitchens is well known for writing. He is from England. He is a very well-spoken, very articulate person. He does a lot of debating, even debating with Christians, but he has been recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. I watched an interview that he gave with a bald head because of the chemotherapy, and he is a dying man. I heard this week of a man who debated Christopher Hitchens, and he asked Mr. Hitchens, what would it take to convince you that God is real? And you know what he said? Nothing. Nothing. It's as if even if God were to come from heaven and stand right in front of Christopher Hitchens, he wouldn't believe. Why? Because he doesn't want to. Sinners don't want God. They hate God. They love darkness. That's true of every sinner. That's just how it is. The only hope that Christopher Hitchens has is the same only hope that any other sinner has, and that is this, that God, by grace, would begin a good work in that sinful heart. Pray for him. When I watched that little interview, I prayed for Christopher Hitchens. He said, if you ever hear of some deathbed conversion, don't believe it. He said, I would never do such a thing if I were lucid, only if I were so medicated and didn't know what I was doing. Let me tell you something about God. God can take a man like Christopher Hitchens who is lucid and overcome all resistance in his heart if he wants to. God can begin a good work in his heart and change his heart to where he is now praising God and believing God and loving God if he so chooses because God has that kind of saving power. And beloved, that is what God has done to you. And that is what God had done in the church here at Philippi. And that is why Paul is so grateful and so thankful and so full of joy because of a miracle of grace that God had performed in this beloved congregation. And the very first convert of this church is a perfect example of this. Lydia, as you remember in, in Acts 16, as Paul is preaching the gospel what happens? The Lord opens her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That is what God does every time He saves somebody. He opens the heart. He opens the eyes. He gives them ears to hear. He gives life to them where there is only death here before. Someone has so wonderfully penned, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. You sought God, I sought God, and we found Him in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we 
came later to understand that my and your seeking God was simply the, root, the fruit of God seeking us. If you seek God, it is because God is drawing you. It is God beginning a good work in you. But this is not the only thing that Paul is convinced of. He says, he who began a good work in you, I love this, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, do you know that your salvation is not final? Do you know that? Just look around. We can tell that our salvation is not final. God has begun the good work of salvation in you by justifying you and by regenerating you and by beginning to sanctify you. But listen, what Paul is saying now is that one day God will glorify you. That is exciting. That is exciting. This is the not yet aspect of salvation. You were justified and regenerated in the past. You are being sanctified in the here and now, even though it may be very slow. But one day, God will glorify you. So there is the already aspect of salvation, which we have already experienced. And then there is the not yet aspect of salvation, which is still future. And that is what Paul is talking about now. And Paul is fully convinced that God, listen, will finish what he has started. God always finishes what He starts. God didn't begin to make the world and then just decide to quit. And God didn't begin to do a good work in you and then not complete it. And so Paul is saying, I am fully persuaded. I am fully convinced that God will perfect what He has started. That means to complete, to complete. This is a great contrast to men How many times have you started something and didn't finish? I'd hate to tell you how many times I've started something and never finished, but not God. F.B. Meyer gives a beautiful illustration of this. He says, we go into the artist's studio and find there unfinished pictures covering large canvases and suggesting great designs, but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because paralysis laid the hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the mark of haste or insufficiency of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which His grace has begun, the arm of His strength will complete. God finishes what He begins. Now, beloved, I don't have to tell you that verse 6 is one of the clearest passages on the doctrine of eternal security, and that is because salvation is based entirely upon the work of God. It is based entirely upon His grace. If salvation were in any part because of man, listen, it would not be secure. If I were in Christ because of something that I did, I would have no hope that it would ever be finished. But if your salvation is the work of God and the work of grace, which it is, you can have all the assurance in the world that what God has begun, He will finish. You are secure. Even if your sanctification is slow, like mine oftentimes is, God will finish it. God is going to complete what He has done. He will perfect you in heavenly glory. Someone has written, the work thou hast in me begun shall by thy grace be fully done. It's a beautiful picture. So in this world, as we look at the church, it is imperfect. It has many blemishes. And we can even become discouraged if we're not careful about the condition of the church. But what Paul is saying is that one day, When the church is glorified, she'll be a perfect bride for the Lord Jesus Christ, who possesses no blemishes. And for this, Paul gives thanks. And for this, Paul is filled to overflowing with joy. So as we conclude, I would ask you to take your bulletin and look at the meditation theme And our meditation theme is the title of the message, Joy-Filled, Gospel-Centered Thanksgiving. Number one, it is the will of God for you to be thankful to Him in everything. 
especially in the gospel. Number two, we are to be a gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel-loving, gospel-spreading church. The gospel is to be of first importance. And then number three, our salvation in Christ is completely due to the grace of God. God is the one who begins and completes our salvation in Christ, and therefore He is worthy of all praise and thanksgiving. Let's thank Him together this morning for what He has begun to do and what He promises to complete. Father, we thank You. We can't thank You enough for what You have begun to do in us. Father, we know that we never, ever would have come to You if You did not lay hold of us, if You did not seek us and pursue us and come after us and arrest us with Your grace. We thank You that You are full of kindness, that You are a saving God, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost and that You have changed our hearts from unbelief to belief, from hostility to friendship. You have made us Your children. And Father, we also thank You for what You promised to do, namely, complete what You have started. We thank You that there is no sin that we could ever commit. There is no act of the devil that could ever take us out of grace. Nothing can prevent you finishing what you have started. We thank you that the Philippian church was a church faithful to the gospel. We pray that that would be the testimony of this church, that we would never deviate, that we would never depart from the purity of the gospel. Father, we thank you, we praise you, And we love you. Thank you for this time we've had together to worship you as a body. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.